Welcome to show number six of the Lenders Playbook Podcast. Today we've got a treat for you. The brilliant Beth Johnson, best-selling author of Lend to Live, is in the house. So get ready for a deep dive into the world of private lending. Discover the perks, some of the profits, and the practical steps you need to kickstart your journey in this business. Beth shares some of her insights from the fundamentals of private lending and what steps she would take if starting all over from scratch and so much more. So without further ado, Beth Johnson. Beth Johnson, welcome. Good Hello. to see you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Welcome. By the, by the way, uh, you are number six on the podcast. So this is episode number six. In our Fantastic. Infancy. I love it. Yeah. So thank you so much for this uh, for this time. This is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, this is this is this will be a conversation that I've been looking forward to because I read your book, Lend to Live, and I'm making my daughter actually read it now too. So, That's so she cool. she'll be 21 soon. Yeah, it's such a good book. Um, I read it and I listened to it, so it's on Audible. I listened to the book. Um, it's different, right? When you listen to a book and when you read it, you get two different messages sometimes. So. Anyway. I've heard that from quite a few people because it's just kind of so meaty that uh, you, you sort of need a hard copy as well. So, yes, absolutely. And this book is filled with so much. So we're going to get into that. And but first, I wanted to talk about you a little bit and and what you like before we get into business and get into all the nitty gritty. What are some things that you like to do outside of uh, outside of work? It's kind of funny, you know, we were talking about the questions that I might be asked, and that one seems like a loaded question these days, like the older uh, you, you get. Know. You're like, what do you mean? I have personal interests and <laughs> personal time set aside after dealing with business and kids. Yeah. Um, so that one always catches me the most, which is kind of funny. But uh, it, I like to do things like running and traveling with my husband. I love to cook and uh, I like to sing. I don't get to do quite as many of those things as often. I was sort of uh, working on reintroducing those back into my life in the last year, which is uh, a lot of fun, uh, but kind of interesting because I had to tabled a lot of those personal things for so long, it seems like. Yeah, that's phenomenal. So it's it's running. You like to run and I'm sorry, I picked up on one thing and that's running because I am I love working <laughs> out. So what kind of running? Are you like long distance running or you go to the track or you run marathons? Or? Oh, no. I mean, okay. just really for uh, personal, physical and mental, you know, health. I started probably almost 15 years ago. I kind of done it when I was mm. younger, but towards my late 30s, I started doing it again. And my goal was to just not get injured. So I realized that I'm a little bit short in stature and I don't really have a runner's body. So I just have to main sh you know, make sure that I go just far enough to get the crazies out so I don't punch people. <laughs> I feel it just keeps me centered and keeps me, you know, feeling more peaceful. And, and I just enjoyed it. And I, I feel like when I run, whether that's on a treadmill or out and about and have really great music on high beats per minute, I just feel like I can fly. So I love that. Yeah. And I really just kind of peek out at a handful of miles, but lately it hasn't been that often or that long, that far. So just being able to get some time to myself to get a, a short two, you know, two and a half, three, three and a half mile run in is uh, sort of special these days, but. It's so, that's so good. Do you think that there's a direct correlation between, we'll call it running or fitness or just getting out there and working out, a, a correlation between that and running a business? Do you think it helps your, I know it's a loaded question again, but do you think it helps your business getting out there and running and clearing your head and being in great shape and such? I mean, I think maybe for the right personality, yeah. it does. For me, I I am such a introspective person. I'm I'm constantly reevaluating uh, situations. I'm replaying circumstances and scenarios over and over again. So when mm. you really hit the pavement and you put music on, it just I just sit there and think about anything and everything, whether it's related to the business or personal challenges that I'm facing, I get to process it, um, evaluate it, figure out what I could potentially do. So I find that running and actually taking showers is where I come up with some brilliance, it seems like. <laughs> I'm able to really process things. So I think it's helpful for my business. I don't know if there's a direct correlation in that 
maybe you never really find an end destination. Uh, it's mm. just a, a constant pounding of the pavement. But yeah, I, re- I mean, it for me, it's a way for me to decompress and get centered again. Yeah. Um, so I found that the less and less that I ran, the busier my business got when the book was published. I really found myself needing it. It's just harder to give myself permission to, to carve out that time to do so. And I can tell a little bit of difference in my own, you know, mental well-being and my levels of peace, not being able to get out there as much as I used to. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you brought up a lot of good points. One of them is the ideas. I know for me, if there is a, an invention of some kind of tablet or some kind of thing that while you're in the shower or running, an idea comes to you and you can just jot it down. Cause I think I've had some of the greatest ideas when I'm out running or in the shower and we're like, Oh, well I'll think of it later. And you just, you, you forget all about it. So I think it's cause it, we're in our, we're letting our mind just relax in an, in a, in another state. You're not flurrying around doing business all day long. You're, you're out there and you're getting, there's blood flow going throughout your body and it's, it's just a really healthy thing. Absolutely. I think of yeah. the car too. I mean, maybe yeah. the younger kids would tell us that that device actually exists and it's called our iPhones, but I think I'm too old <laughs> to even like think or remember to even use that as a yeah. organizational tool sometimes. Yeah, no, that is so true. So tell me about your, your company. Um, you're a private lender and, and you've written a phenomenal book. By the way, I use the word phenomenal a lot. I evidently, so I'll be using <laughs> in this podcast, I'm sure. We talked about this earlier. But the book is really, really, really that good. But I wanted to learn a little bit more about your private lending company um, and share, us, share with us a little bit more about that. Love to hear more. Sure. Uh, my husband, my now husband, Matt Flynn, and I started private lending uh, almost 10 years ago. He had done it previous to 2008. But when we started dating, we bonded over real estate and he wanted to get back into private lending. He'd done conventional mortgage for a while. So we started out with our own capital and a couple of investors that he had within his network. And the company is named Flynn Family Lending. We wanted to evoke something that was a little bit different than uh, your more corporate, institutionally backed, hard money lenders out there and really provide a personalized familial approach to private mm-hmm. lending like you were to get from your mom or your dad. Yep. And so we were deliberate, at least in the intention of it, but I don't know that we were deliberate in how big it would get so fast. I mean, we both had day jobs and we're managing this on the side for quite some years until it got to a point where, uh, you know, private lending was just so popular and being able to provide creative financing that institutionally backed lenders couldn't do right. just grew in popularity. And we found ourselves, you know, in a very good position of having a lot of deal flow on both sides, both investors wanting to invest their capital through us and borrowers wanting to utilize us because of our ease of doing business and our creative approach to funding their deals. That's so, so that yeah, started that's... a handful of years ago and we've spun it off now. You know, I have a second company called Lend to Live Management. Uh, our investor base has grown to the point where it's become a little bit cumbersome to help continue to do that money matchmaking, that private placement of yeah. whole trust deeds that we used to do. And so we have a fund that's uh, the, the book namesake and run them both side by side with my husband. So it's been almost 10 years uh, so far and really enjoying it, trying to manage the growth and grow with it very organically and gracefully as we can. So you created a fund, a real estate fund, and that's where the lend to live management is, is under, right? Is under that the real estate Correct. fund. Okay. Okay. So you're raising capital for that fund and then you're deploying the capital with uh, Flynn uh, family lending. Is that correct? We are yes. When we That's first started, great. we were doing just a few million, a few, a few, you know, maybe uh, twenty, thirty loans annually. But uh, there were so many people within our network that wanted to lend their funds out. A handful of years ago, we sort of peaked at what we really could do with that kind of a business model and like growing ranks of about sixty-five to seventy-five different individual high net worth individuals lending their money through us. Uh, creates a little bit of logistical hassle. So we thought converting over to a fund was probably a more seamless experience, both for us operationally and for our clients too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
that's so important. I, I've seen throughout the years so many people that have tried to raise capital from a number of people without having the strong legal structure of a of a fund properly written, and it just ends up messy. And you're offering so much value to your end investor as well when you have a a well established fund that's producing a good yield, a, a, a high rate of return or a, a healthy rate of return for investors and and you have strong reporting. And so um, no, that's great. Well, good for you. That's 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 great. Um, yeah, I I wanted to also talk about and dive into the book a little bit. And what what first, what inspired you to write this book? I know you co-authored it with one of your partners. Um, both of you did a, such a good job. So I just kind of want to know what, what was the motivation behind the book? And can you tell us a little bit more about the Lend to Live book? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, when my husband and I started out, we bonded over real estate and I didn't really understand the financing side <clears throat> of things because in truth, I always went to my parents and got loans from them, not really knowing that that was private money. And so when I offered to help provide operational support to Matt, I found myself really longing for information, for a network, for peer support. Mm. And that just doesn't really exist. You know, private money and hard money can be a fairly cutthroat business. You know, everyone's clamoring for the, the same business. And I just didn't feel like I could find a network or community to belong to. And I leaned heavily on my attorney. I leaned heavily on Matt for my education, but there wasn't really like a peer network uh, or support group that said, okay, I got this one deal in. How would you approach this? And because private money lenders are sort of elusive, at least the smaller ones like me, I could always go to an industry conference and talk with lots of capital partners, talk with lots of people in the secondary market, fund managers, securities attorneys, all of that jazz. But it really, when it came down to trying to find peers that were of my size, just lending out a, a handful of million a year um, at best, I didn't have that. And so when I met Alex, uh, it was through a Facebook group that I'd always thought about starting, to be honest, but I was just too busy in my business to ever pull something like that together and moderate it. Uh, and she did a, a good job of bringing together topically the types of conversations I wanted to have with with my peers in the industry across the U.S. So she and I bonded over just that desire to have more education for pre small private lenders out there just trying to figure out their way and not do something stupid mm -hmm. <laughs> with other people's capital, no less. And so... She was a professor and I was a instructional designer by trade in my past life. And we just connected over wanting to really provide that educational support to private lenders that were growing their business. And so she had the community. I had the, the background and the experience and the depth of knowledge within my market yeah. and having funded hundreds of deals. So uh, she went out and got a, a contract. She actually got two contracts for uh publishing contracts and it just kind of spawned from there. But the impetus was really to provide some of that foundational knowledge that I had to just learn on my own the hard way. And uh, I'm grateful I didn't screw up, but I did encounter quite a few situations that made me, you know, think twice about how I did, did stuff. And I wanted to, that to serve as a cautionary tale for others too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's great. So it was actually, it was actually came out of a need of your own. Right. I mean, writing the book and it was it was meant for people that were in your position. And there hasn't been much books written in our industry. I mean, I've been doing this. I've been in the industry for 16 years. There has not been. I think there's like two or three books out there. They're all they're good books, but nothing to the detail that you have written out um, as such. So let, let's back up a second, because I have. People that listen to this podcast are ranging from very new, newer people in the industry, uh, people that are entering into the market of private lending. We have real estate folks, professionals that are on the investment side. We have brokers. We have everybody involved in real estate entrepreneurs. If you could kind of define, because there's, there is a number of definitions floating around the marketplace right now on private lending. There's private lending, there's private money, there's hard money, there's, um, 
you know, people hear these things out there is different. They're non-bank financing, DSCR and everything. So if you could, if you could define in your words what a private lender is, I think that'd be a good starting point. And then um, maybe we, we'll go from there too. Sure. For my personal experience, a private money lender, uh, at least in the eyes of what true real estate investors really deem it as, is an individual or individuals who lend their money out on a typically a real estate transaction, typically secured by real estate. Now, if you were to go to an industry perspective on that, uh, it would look a little bit different. Private lending has really sort of taken over the overarching term of hard money. Uh, and I don't think that true borrowers, particularly residential borrowers uh, in the resi space, flippers, small mom and pop landlords, I don't think they view uh, the industry's definition of it quite the same. So I tend to still use the word hard money lenders to describe those that ha actually have a uh, brick and mortar that have a presence in their market that have an active business, whereas private lenders are generally individuals who are seeking a passive source of cash flow, don't really want to be involved in uh, an investment strategy that's more active, like flipping or wholesaling or landlordly landlording. Um, and they don't really want to turn that private lending into an actual business like my husband and I did, and either broker hold trust deed loans or manage a fund and, you know, really run an origination shop. Yeah, got it. Okay. That's very, very good. That's exactly how I view private lending as well. I remember when, uh, in two, in early two thousands, it was, and before that for many decades, it was hard money. That was the term. And yeah, I re I remember when the the terminology started to switch from hard money to private lending. And it, it does get confusing because there are, there, there are real estate investors out there that are posting a lot of videos on Instagram and they're raising money for their own real estate projects. And they're encouraging people to become private money lenders, but that's different. That's, and so um, I think a lot of people ask me, what are the differences? And so your definition is spot on. So I'm going to put, I'm going to quote you on a lot of these things and put it in their show notes. So thank you for that. So a lot of people ask me and, you know, why don't you just go to a bank and get the financing for, for these properties? And of course, these are non-owner occupied properties. This is, this is separate from, you know, buying a house for your family. It's, it's typically these are rental properties or, or you're going to, you know, rehab a property and sell it back, you know, put it back on the market and sell it for a profit. Um, so that's great. So, all right. If someone is interested in becoming a, I'm going to ask you two, two separate questions. If someone's interested in, in maybe switching a career or they want to get into private lending and they want to, um, maybe they have a little bit of money, they're ready to take a jump and, and they don't, they're not interested in managing tenants. They're not interested in swinging a hammer. They're not interested in that. They're more interested in the back end financing of, of things and running a business professionally. What are some things that you would recommend somebody to first, you know, the first one, two or three steps that you would recommend for them to, to take? Well, I think uh, it's selfishly speaking, I would say get my book <laughs> because it does do a yes. good job of explaining yep. what private lending is as an investment vehicle, the different ways that you can do it. You know, obviously you can DIY it and read the book and try and figure out transactionally how to do, how to find and fund your own private loan. But you can also work with brokers, you know, like myself, there's a lot of trustee private placement originators out there across the country that will lend out your money and do it you know, really safely. And then of course you can always vest in a private debt fund too, right? So it's good to be able to look through the book and explore the options and understand what are all the key considerations. Even if you don't DIY it, mm. what should I know about? What should I ask about? What is, what are the risk factors that I need to take into consideration and maybe ask a broker or, or a private placement firm the types of questions in terms of how do they do due diligence? What are their maximum loan to values? Things of that nature. All of that kind of gets explained conceptually in the book itself. And then, you know, after that, I would say start yeah. getting embedded within 
the real estate investor community. Mm. I have a lot of people coming to me that actually already started out in real estate investing. Maybe they did flipping and had rentals too and decided it just wasn't really for them. And so they're really wanting to switch over to the passive side, but they have this sort of foundational experience in real estate investing. So they've already figured out half of the battle, right? Understanding how to look at deals. I don't think we look at them too differently as a lender as we do as an active investor, right? Uh, Fairly similar. We might put slightly different or tightened constraints on them as a lender, um, but very similar in nature. And so they're just looking to pivot over into private lending and it's somewhat of a natural progression. But for those that really have no experience in the real estate investing arena at all, I would say that that's where they need to start. You know, because one of the things that we point out in the book is that you can understand all of the constraints, all the documents you should collect, everything that you need to think about for a loan. But we don't really go into the detail of explaining how do you actually underwrite a deal? How do you review a pro forma? Those types of underwriting things you need to learn as an active real estate investor or through other books, you know, how, how would you actually crunch the numbers? How do you look at a project Mm -hmm. and manage the financials as well as what you expect the, you know, projected income to be on that project too. So there's a lot of different moving parts on that for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, but the first thing you mentioned was read the book. And I would say the same thing to anybody. Um, so, yeah, reading the book is great because it talks about a lot of the, the basic numbers. But you're right. As far as like breaking down and learning how to underwrite a property, that that is a whole shelf of books that we can that we can read and, and understand. But uh, I'd agree. And it's such a such a good, good point. Um, and, yeah, getting involved in your local Rias in your local community and um that's that's good too and uh, of course selfless plug i mean coming to our national private lending conference doesn't doesn't hurt as well and you're gonna obviously uh learn a lot from other people from the speakers on stage and, and from just getting around other successful lenders and brokers and such so what's your thoughts on this um because there are a, mo- a lot of people will come up to me and say well I went to this event or I talked to this lender and they found out at the end of the day, they're just brokering loan. They're just a broker. Um, and I've told people, I said, look, if you, you, if you are a direct lender, make it known to people that, that you are using the money from your own fund, or this is money that you, that you're using of your own, you're managing your own money. You're not just brokering loans. Although at the same token, I do believe in the business model of, of brokering money out and and being a loan broker in our space. What's your thoughts on that? What's your thoughts on, you know, being a a broker in the private lending space? Well, I, first off, I think that brokering actually can be talked about in two different facets, right? One is, are you a, a private money broker or a traditionally more where with a lot of borrowers who might need to have access to various types of alternative lending, uh, bridge lending, mes lending, that kind of stuff. And but then there's also those that, like my husband and I, started out our business model where, for all intents and purposes, we were a broker. Right? I'm still originating loans, meaning I'm bringing in deal flow, but I am matchmaking that with individual high net worth individuals within my network. Mm. I have, you know, for all in. I guess for intensive purposes, I still have control over that capital because I have a very strong understanding and awareness of what my clients' needs are on the capital side. Uh, And so I can exercise a lot of control over that, that maybe a hard money broker might not necessarily have, but they are two very different things. And Mm. so for passive investors that might not want to go out and find and source their own deal, those private placement brokers um, that can help you find the deal, help you throughout the entire transaction and close it and and get it serviced, they have their place, right? Because they do act uh, as a, a conduit between borrower and private capital. But the brokers who help represent a lot of borrowers and have relationships with a lot of direct lenders out there, I'm a little ambivalent about it, to be honest with you, because if you think about it on the resi side, 
most traditional fix and flips and single family or one to four unit deals, I, you know, you can call, you can probably just Google or web search for private lenders or hard money lenders and find yeah. a lot of active players out there that aren't going to require you to, to use a, a true hard money broker that's going to slap points on it. However, if you're going to be, you know, working on a large commercial deal or you need to find um, construction to perm financing, larger commercial deals do really require yeah. a broker to help you find the right financing for that particular project, for that particular deal. And so the, it does have its place, but I I do having within my company support probably 70% resi uh, and the remaining balance into various mm. commercial asset classes. Interesting. The the deals that come to me from brokers, I find are just often so unnecessary. Uh, or if they seem great on the surface, I start digging through and I think, well, why did you end up with a broker? Because there's a lot of big hard money lenders in my market here in Seattle, and they're not hard to find. Right. And Flynn Family Lending, we do a fair amount. We do, you know, maybe 50, 65 million a year, but we're definitely not the biggest. So mm -hmm. I always have to wonder when a hard money broker sends deals over to me, how many people said no to you? And that's always my first question to them is like, okay, I know you know you, you know us, but we're not like, you know, as big as Eastside, which is one of the bigger sure. originators, even in the consumer space, they they trump a lot of consumer lending yep. in our state. Why didn't you take it to them? You could slap points and send it over to them. They'll they'll do it. So why me? Right. I always have to ask that. I'm never but anybody's first choice. I, I'm going to be honest <laughs> with myself. On That's that. so good. Right. It's so funny. And you know what happens is they'll send it to to you, and then they'll send it. And I I might be third or fourth on that list because they'll send it to me because, and I've had this for years. This happens to me for this happened to me for so many years. They think that because we're we're the ones putting on these national conferences on in private lending that of course I know all the lenders that are gonna fund your your crazy deal on in swampland uh someplace and and uh and of course I'm gonna find I'll go and find money for you. I'm gonna do all these things and so I sometimes will get those as well and I ask the same question. Why why me right now? Right? There's so many private lenders that that are viable that can that can handle any deal and if this was so good it would have been funded already or it would have been yeah i mean and transactions are half of what they were if not more from a, a few years ago so it's not you know a couple years ago yeah you could it would, people would always complain to me like i kept calling and calling i couldn't get a hold of anybody and so just picking up the phone just seemed to be like a key differentiation for my husband and i but not mm -hmm. now and so i find that there's a lot of brokers out there that are just really feast or famine yeah. and so i do get a lot of crap across my desk yeah but there's also a, a niche you know like i said for those kind of really strange good deals, good deals on paper, yeah. but they're just, you know, funky. It's like a, what's the one I got a couple months ago? It's like a buying a church and they knew their takeout financing was going to come. This broker only dealt with churches predominantly uh, to renovate and uh, refinance churches for nonprofits. And that broker was probably worth his weight in gold because mm. he really managed a certain niche in the in the lending industry that was hard to find. Um, but like I said, you know, fix and flips, those are a dime a dozen. I, I really, the, more often than not, when they come from a broker, there's it's usually something underlying about the borrower or title that just didn't make sense, which is why they probably exhausted their their search with direct lenders and went to the broker route because they kept getting denied. And so we have to get a little bit more careful in this market with broker uh, supported deals, because especially I just got one across my desk 30 minutes ago and the broker wants four points. Of course he does. And if you were a direct lender, Matt, <laughs> and you were, you, ha I mean, yeah, I mean, if, okay, I, they have to conventionally re refi and it's going to cost them two points. So I'm going to charge three. Am I really going to charge the borrower seven full points? And what does that look like for me when my name's on that settlement statement? They typically have issues with Flynn family. They don't necessarily go to the broker and say, well, you know, those four points was exorbitant, right. especially if the broker's refusing to be paid and put on the settlement statement. Mm. They want to be paid out of escrow. I tend to say, no, thank you. 
for those deals because I need full transparency and I don't want to take the heat for feeling as though I'm just raking a borrower through the coals on their fees. Absolutely. Imagine a deal where you have to pay seven points on and, and yeah, no, I get it. And that, that'll kill a deal too. That'll, that, that can, you know, (laughs) absolutely. not to mention impact their financials. Right. So I'm just thinking, okay, four points. You think you're going to squeeze water out of a grate, but I, Mm. I just don't know that that's really in the best interest of the borrower. So generally we're trying, you know, a lot of brokers aren't super happy with us, but generally speaking, we try to cap them at one point or less just because we think it's in the best interest of the borrower. And uh, unless the borrower agrees and has a written supporting agreement with that broker and and they're all full transparency and allow, allowing them to be paid out of the on the settlement statement, then I might make an exception to that. But generally speaking, we try to cap it just for the benefit of the borrower. Yeah. And I could tell by reading this book and hearing you on other podcasts that you're very conservative in your underwriting. Uh, you protect your book of business so well, and it's it's so important to have that conservative mindset to almost look at a deal like you're trying to find something wrong with it before, and and, and if you know, and you're looking at it uh, with such a good, healthy lens as opposed to that money hungry, you know, feast or famine like you mentioned uh, approach. So it's it's really good. That's a really good habit that I believe that you're you're on to right now so well it's good for my mental health right you know, I have I'm it'll not help you as sleep often, so I need to yeah. exactly it'll help you sleep <laughs> knowing, sure that, yeah. yeah and knowing also too that the deal is healthy but that you trust and you like and you know who your your borrower is too that you have that relationship um, with a borrower that knows what they're doing that's we want to be around important. for the long haul. We, yeah. you know, if I was to try and maximize and juice up my returns, as yeah. you know, a lot of lenders did the last several years, where yeah. the cost of capital was dirt low, I might be having some challenges with my liquidity now. I might be uh, over, you know, consumed with a lot of defaulting loans, and I'm fortunate to not have that. So. I'm never going to be making sexy headlines that we're growing at exponential rates, but you're not you're not also going to hear that we're failing anytime soon and that we're not lending anymore. So I kind of like staying under the radar a little bit. And that yeah. conservative conservatism has done us well in spite of being able to provide creative solutions like second lien positions and stuff like that that are generally considered a little bit riskier in sure. nature too. So so we talked about a couple steps that people can take to get started in private lending. That is if you kind of want to do this as a profession, that's, and that's great. Now, what if somebody is like, okay, well, I'm a little bit more, I'm, I don't have time for any of that. What are some of the benefits though, then in investing? If I was an investor, I wanted to invest into um, your management company, into Lend to Live Management. What are some of the benefits as an investor that that I get in investing into a a fund like yourself, like your like like Lend to Live. Well, it's definitely the much more passive route to go. Mm. If you were to DIY your own loans, you'd have to go and network at these RIA meetings. You'd have to yeah. become a lot more educated on the ins and outs and what the key considerations are so you don't screw up before you fund a deal. You'd have to create relationships, you know. But when you're investing in a private debt fund, the fund managers are doing a core of the work for you. And so we're mitigating risk. We're creating a diversification in our portfolio so that your capital is and that risk is spread out across a number of different deals and projects, not just one single one. Mm -hmm. And you get a healthy return on it as well. That's not in my speculative as going to invest in a syndication. A lot of syndications are really predicated on the repositioning of the asset. It's really predicated on a pro forma that may or may not still stand when they wrote it, you know, two, three, five years ago. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the last couple of years where syndicators were getting into very short term debt or we're getting taking the the variable rates sooner than they than they should have. And so they're either needing to make capital calls now or they're having to return those assets. And so 
private debt funds, especially those that are unlevered like mine, really provide a really safe place for someone to place their capital as an accredited investor because I'm they are in first position for all intents and purposes. They're not uh, behind a warehouse line of credit because I'm not mm-hmm. levering my fund to get a warehouse line of credit with a bank or a financial institution so that I can keep building up my originations. And so I think our fund is actually increasingly more and more conservative and safer because we refuse to have leverage against our fund. We still maintain very conservative 65 to 70 percent combined loan to values on our deals. And in fact, because we do seconds and cross collateralizations, I can't actually pledge a lot of my loans for collateral to get a warehouse line. A lot of banks don't like that. And so by utilizing that kind of strategy, I can not only command higher borrower rates to increase my returns for my clients, uh, but I also will maintain it unlevered because I just simply can't. And so right now our blended portfolio uh, LTV, I think is hovering in the low 60s right now. Wow. That is conservative. Good for you. That's great. As an investor, that's so important, right? It uh, is. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen I've seen high LTVs in the days of, and that's scary for an investor. So good for you. That's that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, gosh, it as an investor, I would much rather get a much lower return on my investment, knowing that this is a strong solid as a rock investment that we're putting our money into as opposed to I'm getting 22%, you know, return and all these things. And, uh, it, it's, it's healthier for everybody the way you're operating. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that those that are kind of shying away from syndications and don't like that speculative Mm -hmm. nature really gravitate towards private debt funds because there is that consistency, that predictable return. The irony about all this is that I'm, I did it backwards where a lot of people start funds and then they're raising capital. I actually had to start a fund out of sheer necessity because my investor base grew so big. But here I had this captive audience of trustee investors that were used to getting double digit returns for me. Ask me how easy it was to convert them over into a fund model, <laughs> right? They, they were like, well, what do, what's my pref return? Like, I'm, I'm, are you going to give me single digits? I need more than that. And so I actually had quite the opposite where I really had to back into a very okay. consistent uh return that they had expected from us year over year. And so I thought actually, and very naively, I thought it'd be easier to just migrate them over than it would be to start a fund net new and bring on new investors. But there's this, uh, you know, grandfathered feeling about what they're typically getting with us before. And I have to try as best I can. I mean, I can't guarantee returns, but they certainly wouldn't slide their capital over into my fund if I didn't offer them something comparable or better. Right. Right. That is a, that I can see how that, that can be a challenge. Certainly. Especially with somebody who has so much money and deployed in your, in your, uh, in the, in the fund as well. Yeah. I mean, I thought they'd be easier for us because they knew <laughs> us, they knew our policies, they've been with us forever, but I get a lot, you know, bigger pockets that publish my book. I get a lot of inquiries yeah. into the fund, just cold, which I never, sure. never tried to raise capital before. And those are actually the easier ones to, to migrate over into the fund, to be honest with you. I was surprised at that. Oh, good. Well, uh, what are some things like if you were to if you were to start over, what are a couple of the things that you would do differently? If if you know, go back in time when you first started out this journey, is there anything that you would that you would do differently than you are than you did? So many things. Um, you know, the first thing I probably would do is set some more individualized boundaries between my husband and I and the separation and the um, division of labor. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, we weren't really planning on turning this into an active business. And as you can imagine, as a husband, working day in and day out with your spouse just presents a whole host of challenges and problems, right? You just don't know where it ends and where it begins. And so I think having more intention behind who would do what, because he's the namesake, he's Matt Flynn, I'm just Beth Johnson, right? And so he really was the, the man in front, he's the namesake, he was the guy that had all the knowledge, 
And so I deferred to him a lot, but I had the operational expertise. Um, and so that's one thing I probably would have put in place. And the others, I wouldn't have been so cheap up front in terms of setting infrastructure, uh, getting the systems right. in place, because I just didn't think it was going to turn into an active business. My advice to those that I coach now uh, in private lending is to, if you're going to turn this into a business and you want to take other people's capital, invest in the software now, invest in setting up systems and processes now, don't wait until you think you need it, right? And so I think that that's something in hindsight, I absolutely would have put in place years ago that I just waited a long time to hire uh, the right quality of people that could take over a functional area of expertise for me, not just bring in net new people into the industry and sort of more of like low level entry level positions uh, and pay for the infrastructure. Absolutely. Infrastructure processes, people, and is is, and I understand the challenge with working with your spouse. It is a blessing, but it's also a a challenge because you have to learn how to. When are we gonna? When are we gonna turn this off? Right? When does work time kind of switch from family time? When does that whole thing? And and as entrepreneurs, we're uh, we're always it's spilling over in every area of our life. You'll find me on a. Saturday at any time I'm working and I meant to do something with my family, but I'm actually sending a text message or I'm, I'm calling somebody or I'm taking a call or I'm doing work. And, uh, and so having those healthy boundaries I found um, is, is so good. Excuse me. Sorry about that. It's so good to, to have those boundaries, like you said, and to um, and then invest in those processes, in the software, and in the people, and invest in that. So that's great advice. Um, that's something that I might take uh, for myself. As as I just started, I started uh, four and a half months ago the American Lending Conference, and I'm the kind of guy that will try to do everything my on my own, and. And I'm very controlling when it comes to business. I like to be in control of my sales process and my marketing. And and at a certain point, you have to just let go of control and trust in other people, trust in other processes or software and things like that to leverage so you're not working 24 hours a day and burning yourself out. And you're not even being that efficient while doing it too because there's people that can do things way better than I can. I mean, I'm good at certain things, but I'm really, really bad at a lot of things as well. And so I think it's important to have those people that are much better than you help you in those areas. That was a tough one for me, that's for a, sure. That's a tough one. I, well, I, it's a cutthroat business, like I mentioned before, right? And so like, especially local within your market, it's like if I hire Okay, so Beth, let me ask you, how does a listener, how do they get involved with you as far as becoming an investor with your company? Well, the first thing that they could do is go to our website, lendtolive.com. So it's lend, the number two, L-I-V-E.com. And there's a section on there about how to invest with us. And it talks Mm -hmm. about how to uh, invest in our private debt fund, which is a more passive and uh, consistent way to deploy your capital. And it has all of the high level details about, uh, you know, our expected returns, the minimum requirement to invest lockup periods and all that good stuff that comes with investing Mm -hmm. in debt funds like that. And then they can, uh, there's an inquiry form on there that they can reach out to get some of our docs and set up a meeting with uh, myself and my fund manager, Gerard Figarelli, who is a seasoned hedge fund manager that I brought over to help us run our fund and make our capital investment safe and secure. And uh, we can just go from there that way. So I always like to start with a little bit of online research and then mm-hmm. a phone call so we can make sure that we know how to address each other's needs. Yeah, that's that's great. Okay, I'll and I'll put that link in the show notes. So so those listeners that are interested can reach out to you. And I know I'll probably end up reaching out to you uh, and talking about this. So that's exciting. Okay. So what's, what's next 
on what's next for your company? What are you excited about in the on the horizon for both Lend to Live and 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 Flynn? What what are you most excited about? Well, I'm excited about a lot. I feel like we're really on the cusp of creating some change for my husband and I just to make sure that our businesses are running smoothly and get a little bit back more some free time to ourselves by Mm -hmm. having some key hires and some partnerships with people like my fund manager and uh, a business development director that we just hired on. So on the lending side, we're just excited because creative financing and solutions offered by Flynn Family Lending and Lend to Live continue to have legs, especially in a challenging real estate financing market like uh, 2024 Mm. seems to be shaping up to be. And so that's exciting for our business to be able to have some great team members coming on board and helping us really take on the the deal flow that seems to be on the horizon for us. And then outside of lending and origination, I'm really excited about continuing to build a community for small private uh, money lenders, those who are newer and aspiring, wanting to just get into the game and passively lend out their own money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they've heard about us through the book and maybe want some uh, small group coaching or some educational uh, opportunities that we will be looking to provide through Lend to Live. And then also continuing to do some of these things like the Lend to Live Mastermind with small business owners like myself across the country and being able to attach ourselves to key industry conferences like yours with the American Lending Conference in Fort Lauderdale. It's just a great opportunity for us to be able to convene and network and share best practices with each other. Uh, I think that it's kind of this secret society out there of private lenders and we don't often get a chance to get together and really talk about the market space and trends mm-hmm. and challenges that we have as small business owners. And so I'm really keen on being able to push that forward with a lot of my peers as well over the next uh, 12 months. Yeah, that's, I could tell what what you just said really resonates well with what I read in your book. And you have this heart of, wanting to teach and to serve and to, to develop a community. So I applaud you for that. I, I keep going, keep going with that. I, I, and certainly we're going to have a great time at the conference and, um, and you're all over the place. You're, you're speaking all over. So, um, good, really good. It's inspiring. Last couple questions. Uh, the, um, and this is, this is a question that's, that's, um, I love to ask this question and what, which books have had the biggest impact um, on you personally or within in your business? Well, I think one of the best books that I've uh, read in recent years, just from a business standpoint, you know, uh, the first one I would say would be Profit First. I think that's what a lot of mm. new business owners get into because they're not really sure how to handle the whole money management of it. But Scale by David Finkel really was um, a great book for me to be able to really take our burgeoning business into something that was more systematized, that was more well thought out. And it gave me the structure I needed to really, uh, you know, grab the reins of this business that was kind of going out of control on its own. Um, And so that was very helpful for me. I think on a personal level and just dealing with all of the things that life throws at you, as well as being a working mom that happens to have worked part-time as her kids were young and then thrown into this, you know, full-time entrepreneurship. Books like uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving Enough is something that I reference quite frankly. I actually just did a presentation on it to female real estate investors in my community here outside of Seattle. And Uh, It's written by Mark Manson. I think it's just a great way to rethink how you structure your value system and how you spend your time. And I don't think that we often think about that enough as uh, individuals, especially business owners. Our goals are so focused on professional endeavors Mm. and achieving certain marks within our, uh, you know, the business side of things. But we don't really often align those with how we spend our time and what our value system are. And so Mark Manson in the book always says that your priorities are a measurement of your value systems. And if they're not congruent, then can you really say that, you know, value, your number one value is family uh, when you're really spending most of your time at the business? And then you come home and bring that with you and maybe 
not even eat dinner with your family and you're just taking your meal into your your home office and continuing to work. And I think that's hard for small business owners because our business becomes really a baby of ours, right? But our, our first babies are our families, mm-hmm. <laughs> the children that we bring into the world, uh, our spouses, our aging parents. And so sometimes it's really good to rethink those. And I think the subtle art always, uh, you know, I read about once a year to re-remind myself what my true values are and kind of keep that, what my true north is, you know, as a beacon about everything that I do and make sure that I'm really honoring a commitment to myself. And so I really have been leaning less away from business books lately and more towards self-help or self-actualization books like The Mountain Is You is one that I read last year and making sure that I'm not doing a whole bunch of self-sabotage that wreaks <laughs> havoc on my emotional well-being and makes me, you know, live up to this mommy martyr that I tend to be every now and then and makes me really focus my, you know, on my issues head on and make sure that I'm not creating some of my own problems for myself, you know? So the mountain is you has been one that's been really great for me in the last year. So we have scale. Uh, And who is that by? Do you remember? If not, I can leave David Finkel. David Finkel. Okay. That's right. And then the subtle art of not giving a beep uh, will be in the show notes. I, Honestly, that's been now the fifth or sixth time in the last week. It must be a sign. I need to read that book. It's in my queue on Amazon. I just have, I'm always not, or I don't know why I haven't ordered it, but I will. So thank you for that. And the mountain is you. Is that correct? Right. By, okay. I think it's Brianne Wiest. Oh, great. Okay. Perfect. Well, that's great. So where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me and can, and access me through, uh, you can get my contact information through one of our websites, flynnfamilylending.com or lendtolive.com. I'm also on Facebook as Beth Pinkley Johnson, and I'm on Instagram as at lendtolive.beth. And then I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Okay. And you're on BiggerPockets. Did you mention that already? Uh, yes, I'm on bigger you're, pockets you're, as well. Of course, yep, yep. Of course, okay. <laughs> of course, right, right. Well, we need to do this again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. There's so much valuable information that you shared. There's so much value that you're bringing to the industry as a whole, and it's it's an honor to to interview you. And I will certainly um, put these show notes up and links to to the books and where people can find you. I encourage everybody to to reach out to you if they're interested in in learning more about becoming a private lender, but also learning how to invest with your company. Um, and so I, I encourage everybody to do that, but I, again, thank you. Please let us, let me do this again. Let's, let's book it in the next, you know, and we'll do another podcast. Sound good. I love it. Let's do that. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you in person at your conference shortly. Yes, yes, yes. Likewise, likewise. So thank you so much, Beth. And we will talk to you very soon. All right. Thanks so much. All right. As we wrap up the podcast for today, I want to thank you for tuning in and being a valuable part of the Lenders Playbook podcast community. And if you found value in today's episode, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe, like, and share your thoughts in the comments. Your continued support is the driving force that enables us to consistently deliver guests like Beth and and allows us to serve our audience. So for additional details and resources mentioned in today's episode, please check out our show notes at AmericanLendingConference.com slash podcast. We look forward to reconnecting with you next week for another insightful episode. Until then, stay inspired and keep thriving.